The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 70, The Chinese Dark Ages. We have followed the story of China throughout its ancient history. China's history is a history of dynasties. It all started with the dynasty that exists in stories called the Xia dynasty. And if it did exist, then it would have likely have existed at the turn of the second millennium BCE. We have told the story of all of the dynasties that have led us to the imperial dynasties. Traditionally, the second dynasty was the Shang, during the middle of the second millennium. Archaeologically, the existence of the Shang has been proven. The Zhou dynasty, which followed the Shang, is the longest dynasty of Chinese history, spanning almost 800 years. The first period is known as the Western Zhou, and the second period is known as the Eastern Zhou period which in turn is further split into the Spring and Autumn period and the Warring States period. Seven major states within the imperial lands of Zhou rose up against each other and it would be the state of Qin, who would conquer all the other states during the 3rd century BCE. The Qin dynasty was very short-lived, but we cannot ignore its iconic impact on Chinese history. With its somewhat strict legalist form of rule with a strong centralised governance which would pave the way for Chinese imperial history for the next 2,000 years. The Qin would fall and be replaced by the Han who ruled with less absolutism that would encourage a more harmonious empire that could last much longer than the short-lived Qin dynasty. Chinese culture truly flourished under the Han Dynasty with great advances in academia and trade. Confucianist philosophy was at the heart of education and much of its cultural advances have endured to the modern age, especially when it comes to language and writing. The Silk Road would not only bring exotic goods to China but would also allow the sharing of scientific ideas with the West. The Collapse of the Han From the 2nd century, the Han Dynasty started to show cracks as corruption at the highest levels of government started to become a bigger issue. Families and clans linked to the imperial court would show favouritism for their own, as well as the court eunuchs who had been emasculated in an attempt to prevent a desire to seek power. This corruption would create a neglectful rule of the empire where peasants were being mistreated by greedy landowners and local governors for their own benefit, without there being any policing or consequences. This would cause the peasants to coalesce in their shared hardship into Taoist sects who secretly plotted to cause a widespread rebellion within Han Dynasty China. The rebellion is known today as the Yellow Turban Rebellion and it would take a considerable effort by Han China to put the rebellion down. 
so much so that Han China was never really able to impose centralised rule on its empire ever again. So although Han defeated the Yellow Turbans, the Yellow Turbans had caused a long-term decline to begin over the course of the next generation. With central power compromised, the culture emerged where societies would have to fend for themselves without any support from the imperial court. Local chiefs would begin to take control of lands and societies and operate on a military level to defend their land and even expand to take others. The most successful of these warlords would carve out greater territories which would still be under Han China's imperial influence but effectively under the local warlord's control. Some of the warlords would have their own ideas about the future of Han China. There was a general desire to remove corrupt individuals in order to bring prosperity back to the empire, but also individual warlords would have personal ambitions to be able to play a fundamental part in the future of the empire, even acting as the emperor. So the conflicts between the warlords would escalate and become larger in scale and more significant in terms of their effect on the direction of the Empire's future. One of the strongest warlords was a man called Cao Cao, and he would take control of the young Emperor who now lacked any kind of influence, just being an Emperor in name only. Cao Cao would be able to influence the Han court with control of the Emperor, which would only help to empower him to succeed. He would also take control of all the lands of northern China before turning his attentions to the lands south of the Yangtze River. When he attempted to move south, Cao Cao was neutralised by two powerful warlords called Liu Bei and Sun Quan, and his expansionist ambitions were prevented. When Cao Cao died in 220, his son Cao Pi deposed the ineffective emperor thereby ending the Han Dynasty. The lands of Cao Cao, Liu Bei and Sun Quan would become three separate empires and this is known as the Era of the Three Kingdoms. The Three Kingdoms The Three Kingdoms period was the start of a prolonged period of instability and disunity in China and we're going to take that journey today. Cao Cao's lands became the state of Cao Wei, and Cao Cao's son, Cao Pi, would rule as Emperor Wen of Wei. The other two warlords who prevented Cao Cao's expansion southwards would go on to stylize themselves as the emperor of their lands. Liu Bei's lands became the state of Shu Han, and Liu Bei himself became Emperor Zhao Lie of Han. Sun Quan's lands became Dong Wu, anglicised as Eastern Wu, and Sun Quan became Emperor Da of Wu. The breakdown of the Han Dynasty had impacts on different levels, and estimates suggest that top-ranking officials would have more likely been practical men rather than educated men the generation of Confucian scholars was no longer happening and it is strongly suggested that by the mid-3rd century through a contemporary source that less than 3% of top officials were even literate. 
Confucians saw Taoists as uneducated and simple, with no constructive plan for rebuilding China, and therefore detrimental. Taoists would believe that greed within the ranks of China, a place where Confucians would be found among others, destroyed it. As we know, Chinese names are quite simplistic in their nature, and the state of Wei is a name that we have encountered before. Wei was the origin of the legalist reformer called Shang Yang, but this particular state is distinct from the state of Wei that was originally part of a larger state called Jin. So the name Cao Wei is a historian's reference to the state of Wei from the Three Kingdoms period, and it is associated to the family clan of Cao, the most famous member of course being Cao Cao. The emperor of Cao Wei in the year 239 was a young man in his 30s called Cao Rui, and he would contract an illness which forced him to address the issue of his succession. He knew that his adopted son would be the one to succeed him if he passed away, but he was only an infant at the time, and a regency would need to be prepared. Two regents were selected. They were the military generals Cao Shuang and Sima Yi. Cao Rui did indeed pass away, and the regency of the state of Cao Wei did indeed pass into the hands of Cao Shuang and Sima Yi, who governed together harmoniously. However, there soon emerged an atmosphere of competition and jealousy as Cao Shuang seemed to fear the capabilities of Sima Yi, which would make him look like the weaker partner. Tension between the three kingdoms was always there. Sima Yi would have to mobilise military units to combat the aggressions from Sun Quan's state of Eastern Wu, and he would prove himself to be very capable, defeating the Eastern Wu and keeping them at bay. The insecure Cao Shuang was probably not pleased about it, so he launched his own campaign against the state of Shu Han, and he did this against the advice of Sima Yi. The campaign was a disaster as Cao Wei was defeated and this only went to demonstrate the wisdom of Sima Yi and the foolishness of Cao Shuang. And Cao Shuang could not handle it. Sima Yi knew that there could only be a future for one of them and so he orchestrated a coup d'etat which resulted in Cao Shuang surrendering to him and eventually being executed on the grounds of treason. This is how the Summa clan gained control of Cao Wei, with members of the Cao clan being proclaimed as emperor in name only. The Cao would continue to try to gain control back, but the Summa clan prevented it. Under the Summa clan, Cao Wei would stabilise and grow stronger, which was bad news for Xu Han, who recognised its superior strength and had tried to combat it on a number of occasions. In 262, Sima Yi's son, Sima Zhao, announced that he intended to conquer the state of Shu Han. A year later, he succeeded by accepting the surrender of the Shu Han Emperor. After Sima Zhao's death in 265, his son, Sima Yen, usurped the Cao Wei throne and established the Jin dynasty. Sima Yen now ruled as Emperor Wu of Jin 
and in 280 he would turn his attentions southeast towards the state of Eastern Wu. The Jin completely overwhelmed Eastern Wu with numerous simultaneous military advances and Eastern Wu had no option but to surrender to the superior state. China was now reunified under the Jin dynasty and the Three Kingdoms period was over. The Jin Dynasty Sima Yen was a capable emperor who would try to improve the infrastructure of his lands by enabling better access across the Yellow River and encouraging trade along the Silk Road in order to try to rescue the fragile economy that had never recovered from a century and a half of warfare and corruption. Despite all of his attempts to rescue Chinese lands, Fortune was against the Jin dynasty. There are records of droughts, famines, floods, locust infestations and plagues around the lands east of the Hexi Corridor around the upper Yellow River Valley. The plagues were helped by the fact that these lands were the most densely populated and I have read that only 20% of the population remained in some lands after a wave of death and high taxation causing peasants to abandon their lands. China was heading towards the fragmentation and decentralisation that destroyed the Han Dynasty. When Sima Yan died in 290, the imperial throne passed to his mentally disabled son Sima Zhong, who ruled as Emperor Hui. His cognitive deficiency was an invitation to many potential regents to scramble for power over the empire. The internal fighting between the potential regents further debilitated the central power in a situation reminiscent of the bickering between the eunuchs and the partisans during the later years of the Han Dynasty. Sadly, the ineffective emperor was poisoned and died in 307 and was succeeded by his much younger brother who ruled as Emperor Hawaii. Emperor Hui made the mistake of inviting tribes from the far north in the state of Hanzhou to help him to defend his position against his rivals. But these people were the descendants of the southern Xiongnu, who were integrated into Han China during the first century. They were fed up with the condition of life in Jin China and were looking for autonomy. So when Emperor Hui approached them, they befriended him before capturing him and advancing on the very important Chinese cities of Luoyang and Chang'an, which completely compromised the entire spiritual essence of the imperial rule. Both Emperor Wei and his successor Emperor Min were executed in a demonstration that the Xiongnu had no regard for the mandate of heaven. The Xiongnu were not of Chinese origin, so why would they believe the execution of Chinese emperors to be sacrilegious. The Sixteen Kingdoms The unified China under the Jin is referred to as the Western Jin period and it was all too short-lived as China fragmented yet again and the Jin had to abandon their northern lands and migrate southwards where we refer to them as the Eastern Jin. The name Sixteen Kingdoms is quite a generalisation for a period where there were a number of kingdoms not necessarily always 16, but of various ethnicities staking their claim of autonomy in northern China. 
In the south, a new capital city was established by the Jin at Jiankang, modern-day Nanjing, in the lower Yangtze River Valley, and it was sufficiently far away from the rebellious lands of the north to be able to establish itself relatively peacefully. In fact, the mid-4th century began to see some cultural advances, the likes of which had not really been known since the years of Han Dynasty China. The Eastern Jin would take a very measured approach to military action against the kingdoms of the north, opting not to throw everything towards defence or reconquest and preferring to invest in their own independent recovery instead. As for the kingdoms in the north, they would be allowed to bicker among each other for their own individual bids for power. There was a period in the middle of the 4th century where the Jin would move to regain northern territories such as the city of Luoyang, but this success was short-lived with the Jin being pushed back to the south again shortly afterwards. We mentioned people of different ethnicities battling for supremacy in northern China during the Sixteen Kingdoms period. We're quite familiar with the story of the Xiongnu who created a large empire in the Eastern Steppe which prompted the Qin Dynasty of the 3rd century BCE to construct the first Great Wall of China. Another ethnic group was called the Di and we don't know a lot about them. It is likely that they originated from the same style of semi-nomadic Central Asian cultures as the likes of the Xiongnu but we believe that the Di could be ancestors of the Tibetan cultures and could have spoken a Turkic language. The significance of the Di is that they rose to power in northern China during the Sixteen Kingdoms period. The Di would establish a power base at the city of Chang'an and would go on to successfully unite most of the kingdoms of northern China, which would collectively be known to history as the Empire of Former Qin. So later in the 4th century we can recognise a north-south divide with former Qin ruling in the north and the eastern Jin ruling in the south. But yet again this seemingly stabilising condition was all too short-lived when former Qin and eastern Jin battled each other at the Battle of Fei River in 383. Victory for eastern Jin led to the collapse of former Qin and northern China fragmented yet again. Northern and Southern Dynasties The defeat of the former Qin allowed another ethnic group who had been present in northern China to reassert their autonomy and increase their own power. They were the Xian Bei people, and they originated from the lands east of the power base of the Xiongnu, who we have referenced numerous times in connection with Eastern Steppe culture history. Their relationship with the Xiongnu was tense for many centuries, and now, like the Xiongnu, they had an ethnic presence among the societies of northern China. The Xianbei people who grew in power at the end of the 4th century were from the Tuba clan and had been ethnically recognised as princes earlier in the century before their subjugation by the former Qin. Now they would reassert themselves as princes before rising up against their traditional overlords, the later Yen, at the Battle of Senhe Slope in 395. The Tuobar Xianbei are recognisable as the state of Northern Wei in Chinese history, and they would take the lands of the later Yen 
and extend their power and influence. Meanwhile in the south, a military man called Leo Yu came from humble beginnings and had ascended to the military ranks of a commander and achieved notable victories which increased his renown. His military campaigns had even brought him into conflict with the Northern Way and he was successful in taking back the historically, politically and strategically important cities of Chang'an and Luoyang. His successes allowed him to effectively control Jin China politics and he would eventually oversee the abdication of the emperor in 420 and proclaim himself the new emperor. The Jin dynasty was over and the Liao Song dynasty had replaced it, taking control of Jin China. The north of China was still fragmented with many states and tribes attempting to gain control in a continuation of the Sixteen Kingdoms period. The notable one, as we have mentioned, was the Northern Wei, and they would actually take back control of Luoyang from the Liao Song dynasty in the early 420s. The Tuoba Xianbei state of Northern Wei would then turn their attentions west, where the kingdom of Xia was also gaining power, and it was being orchestrated by their traditional ethnic rivals, the Xiongnu. In 430, the kingdom of Xia fell, and now the Northern Wei had control of the entire northern frontier of Liao Song to their south, and within 10 years succeeded in unifying the rest of northern China. We can refer to this period of the 5th century as the period of northern and southern dynasties, with Northern Wei in control of northern China and Liao Song in control of the south. The tensions between Northern Wei and Liao Song were dangerously high. The Liao Song took back control of Luoyang, while the Northern Wei were preoccupied with the Xiongnu kingdom of Xia. But things would turn and the Northern Wei would also attempt to besiege the southern capital at Jiankang. We do know that Jiankang, modern Nanjing, prospered as a city during this period nonetheless, and would grow thanks to the wealth of international trade that would make it one of the greatest cities of the East. Despite the fact that there was still wealth through international trade along the Silk Road, and the fact that they successfully repelled the Northern Way, the Liao Song dynasty didn't really fully impose itself on its societies, and the more religiously natured philosophical sects such as the Buddhists and the Taoists grew more powerful during this period, and this is often blamed for the economical instability of Liao Song. One of the generals of the Liao Song military rose up in power and influence and his name was Xiao Dao Chung, an educated Confucian. He would seize the throne of the imperial state and effectively replace the Liao Song dynasty with the Southern Qi dynasty in 479. It appears that Southern Qi was no more stable than Liao Song, however, despite this change in imperial lineage. The conflicts with the Northern Way would unsurprisingly continue with the Northern Way using a pretext of opposing the Southern Qi usurpation. The Southern Qi would simply defend and fortify their lines and cities and the result was a peace treaty between the two vulnerable states signed in the year 490. In the early 6th century we can see yet another dynastic change in Southern China when the Southern Qi was replaced by the Liang. The Southern Qi had of course replaced the Liao Song, 
who in turn had replaced the Eastern Jin, and this really just demonstrated the fragility of the emperors during this period. So daunting was the prospect of having your throne potentially being challenged by legitimate family claimants and powerful military leaders that sometimes the most dramatic actions were taken to preserve the imperial throne. Emperor Ming of the Southern Qi, as an example, had acquired the imperial throne after staging a coup d'etat and subsequently slaughtered the descendants of his imperial predecessors in order to prevent suffering the same fate. The end of Southern Qi was incredibly severe as the emperor who succeeded Ming seemed to execute anyone he wanted to, including high-ranking officials. And he attracted too many enemies, including one general called Xiao Yen, who was related to the Southern Qi dynasty. He put the emperor under so much military pressure that his own officials assassinated him. Xiao Yen became the emperor in 502 and this instigated the start of the Liang dynasty. Xiao Yen must have seemed like the antithesis of the outgoing emperor Xiao Bao Juan in that he embraced Buddhism and opposed executions. The empire grew in prosperity again and began to demonstrate a military superiority over the Northern Wei, who themselves were coming under internal pressure. Internal disagreements among the nobles of the Northern Wei led to its disintegration into two separate states, but still ethnically ruled by descendants of the Tuoba clan of the Tianbei people. Despite this, the relationship between the two states remained hostile. The Liang in the south reclaimed some of their lands thanks to this disunity in the north also. Now the word sinicized is to Chinese what anglicized is to English. And the Eastern Way was the more sinicized half of the Northern Way, with many descendants of the Han Dynasty living in its territory. Eastern Wei desired to reunite with Western Wei, and this failed despite a number of campaigns. Eventually, a man called Gao Yang, who had both Han and Tianbei blood, took the imperial throne of the state, and it would become known as Northern Qi. Western Wei would take some time to establish itself economically and militarily, but indeed it did, and despite the fragmentation of Northern Wei, both the Northern Qi and the Western Wei would turn their attention southwards towards the Liang. The Western Wei would actually capture the Yangtze River port of Jiangling in a successful southward campaign very similar to that conducted by the Han military general and warlord Cao Cao around 350 years earlier. This was a serious blow for the Liang dynasty in the south, the sudden success of the Western Wei's southward advances can be attributed to something called the Fubing Militia System, where the reserve units could be mobilised quickly from their assigned lands, and it was so effective that the most dominant dynasties of the next two centuries adopted this system too. Despite these conflicts that we might describe as international conflicts, there was still internal strife in both the states of Western Wei and Liang. And by the end of the 550s, both ruling dynasties had been overthrown. The Western Wei had been deposed by the Northern Zhao, and the Liang were removed from the ruling lands of the south by the Chen dynasty, 
and the Liang were left to rule a very small puppet state on the border of the Northern Zhao. So, let's summarise this. Essentially, after the Three Kingdoms period of the 3rd century, the northern state of Cao Wei was overthrown by the Jin dynasty who reunified China. The Jin would lose their lands in North China and were forced south while various states battled for the north during the Sixteen Kingdoms period. It would be the Northern Wei dynasty that reunified Northern China and there was a definite distinction between Northern China and Southern China. The Northern Wei split into two and towards the end of the 6th century there were three kingdoms again. Southern China was always one state during this period but it was ruled by different dynasties as the years went by. The Rise of the Soy So we need to try to connect this period to the medieval period that we will cover in Volume 4 and the story of the Tang dynasty that ruled the whole of China from the 7th century to the 10th century. The Northern Zhao dynasty were in a powerful position from their heartlands in the northwest, and they had control of the upper Yangtze which compromised the power of the Chen dynasty in the south. Firstly, Northern Zhao turned their attentions towards Northern Qi, maybe because they feared their capabilities. But the Northern Qi were affected by bad leadership and the state disintegrated with reports of defections and by 577 the whole of Northern Qi had fallen into Northern Zhao hands and the whole of Northern China was united under one emperor by 580. Northern Zhao had ambitions of unifying the whole of China, but the new Emperor Xian was a young man who made some questionable decisions that prompted his father-in-law to depose him and take control of Northern Zhao, establishing a new dynasty called the Sui dynasty. He would rule as Emperor Wen, and he would make great efforts to return China to greatness, even if that meant that the peasants would have to suffer in poverty to get there. Even though Emperor Wen would promote the religion of Buddhism, he would also promote the inclusion of Confucian scholars in his state administration, echoing from the days of the Han Dynasty, and he would commission great building projects such as the rebuilding of the Great Wall and the construction of the Grand Canal, which required much labour, not unlike the ambitions of Qin Shi Huang, the first great emperor of China from the Qin dynasty. However, the most notable of all these achievements that was achieved by Emperor Wen was when he sent half a million troops across the Yangtze River to successfully take the southern capital of Jiankang and conquer the Chen dynasty, bringing to an end the southern dynasties that had consistently existed throughout the northern and southern dynasties period. This would unite the whole of China for the first time in over three and a half centuries and it would signal the end of the Chinese Dark Ages. Now then, if you found that episode hard to follow, don't worry too much. It was a difficult period to learn about. And to be honest with you, the, probably the best way to learn about it is to break it down. And I'll leave that to the, the Chinese podcasts, the better Chinese podcasts out there, such as those made by Laszlo Montgomery, for example. 
and um, you know, don't worry too much if you're, you know, if you did, if you struggled to take it in or you struggled to follow the story. There was a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack from that period, and and there's a lot of uh, political turmoil, um, to put it mildly. And there's a lot of different emperors and a lot of different names and the state names of China repeat themselves over and over again, which is why they're distinguished by northern and southern and western, eastern, former, later. They've all got these very similar sounding names. So forgive yourself if you found that hard to follow. It doesn't mean that you've, um, you know, you're losing the plot or anything like that. It really is a difficult um, period to follow and probably one of the more difficult podcasts to listen to out of all of them that we'll do in this entire series. So, um, you know, if you're interested in this period of Chinese history, you can go back and listen to it again. And sometimes I I find that if you've got maybe uh, timeline maps of China, like uh, you see so often on YouTube, there's some great um, creators of um, rolling maps that show you the changes in history of places, such as those made by Ollie Bai. If you find Ollie Bai's maps um, on YouTube, that show you the history of China um, and they will really give you a much better idea visually of what was going on during this period. So like I say, if, you, if you've struggled to follow it, don't punish yourself too much. Um, other episodes will be much easier to listen to. But um, nonetheless, it's a very fascinating period. We can't leave it out. We can't leave it out. It's essential to the history of China and these Chinese dark ages as they're sometimes dubbed um, really show you how much turmoil there is and, and also the, the ethnic um, divisions of China as well with the, with the um, semi-nomadic tribes actually becoming part of the culture of the north and, and very much integrated into northern Chinese politics. So um, very interesting anyway. Um, if you're interested in history, you'll always find anything like that interesting. So... Um, but it leads us nicely into volume four when we finally get there. Now, of course, every week we tell you that if you want to support the project, then you can do that. It's an amateur project. There's no funding from any professional body for this project. So it's really just an amateur project. So any contribution will help the podcast to grow and uh, become a bigger project in the future, hopefully. It will also contribute towards the running costs of the podcast, which are always uh, always gratefully received in terms of the production and the materials used. Um, and if you if you are interested in doing that, then just simply go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and go through to the page for the History of the World podcast on Patreon. There'll be a few explanations on there in terms of what... Uh, what you can um, be entitled to in terms of monthly contributions. Um, We give rewards for accumulated contributions, so you don't have to sort of sign up and make huge monthly contributions. You can still get rewards um, for donating as little as $1 a month. If you you go to the website, it'll all explain it there. We send you gifts through the post, privileges, and uh, also you have the lifelong distinction of being a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Um, Let's see if we've got any new members this week. I've just got to do a little bit of clicking about as usual. Let's have a look. Um, This week, um, we... Uh, we welcome Robert Vaughan, uh, 
who is now a member of the History World Podcast Illuminati, and PSC Cord um, has also made a, a contribution. I think you're already in, aren't you? I think you're already in the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. So uh, he's, uh, he's, he's coming again, wants to be a, a double member. Thank you, Pierre. Um, anyway, uh, moving on also, we, we do like to read out some of the listen messages that have come in, and we've received a few this week. The first one, um, is, but hi Chris, my name is Ryan Higgs. I'm a Hot World super fan uh, from uh, Waco in Texas, a city whose own infamous history includes the remains of at least 24 mammoths, a legalised red light district, the birth of Dr Pepper, the lynching of Jesse Washington, a 1953 tornado killing 114, and David Koresh and the Branch Davidians and Baylor University. You certainly know a lot about your town there, Ryan. Very impressive indeed. Um, I wonder what uh, someone in a different hemisphere might, might think of a city like Waco. Uh, although I'll tell you the boring truth, I've also lived in Dallas and Austin and Waco is not drastically different or particularly villainous. Um, I'm actually reaching out because I listened to Volume 2, Episode 6, in which you read a listener's audio complaint. My primary profession is audio en- engineering and I love your podcast, so I just wanted to offer any assistance you might need. Uh, you sort of then go on and, and tell us about all the things that you can do, which is wonderful. I'm sure that if, with all those skills, I'm sure you could sort of be a, a great help to many many of us podcasters you put another idea I've noticed that you or a friend create a slightly different version of the theme Johnny, uh, the theme song each season which is a super cool idea I would love to help you with future theme songs I've mixed and mastered many many musical projects and ha- I have a pretty extensive library of MIDI instruments and effects this would absolutely just be a fun project for me so I would definitely help you for free create a professional sounding intro that you can use for your next volume um listen I'm I'm very interested in that kind of thing I, I was always hoping one day that someone might approach me and say I want to re-record your theme tune because I'm you know I'm a big fan of of covering it over and over again and having so many different versions of it and um, all of the versions have been created by me on various software programs you might be surprised to know I, I tend to sort of downplay my abilities but um, uh, this theme song was uh, whipped up in about 10 minutes and it's sort of um, now it's got a bit of a life of its own really um, but I, I've always hoped that someone might approach me and want to re-record it in their own style but I'll be very excited to hear that if anyone does do that um you know i even noticed that um becky brindle also is um, a member of the history of the world podcast illuminati and and uh, she performs in her own blues band i believe so i don't know if i don't know if that's a possibility for her to be able to create a, a version of the theme tune but anyone that does um i'd be extremely extremely interested uh, but thank you, Ryan. I've sent you a reply, and, and hopefully that will sort of explain where I am in terms of the project, and and um, you know what what could be done going forward. So uh, thank you so much for the kind message, Ryan. Um, moving on, I've got also got a message from Stephen Buckmaster, who's but hi, Chris. First of all, uh, great work. Uh, one of the ups of the last years. I've had time to go back to history. The thing that I love, but foolishly got sidetracked. Still back now after 30 years. The thing that staggers me, and I've got a pretty good degree in the subject and and am of radical mind, was the uncritical acceptance I had of the linear discrete unit paradigm 
I sort of understood the imagined community proposition of Benedict Anderson, the way that in later 19th century nation-states constructed founding narratives, but I didn't really appreciate how that discrete nation concept was applied to the past in terms of artificial concepts of peoples, which now seems ludicrous. I now find it impossible to have any real concept definition of Goth, Hun, Celt, except branches of very broad churches of not Romans. It seems to me... Uh, a move perhaps to embracing the liminal seems methodologically the way forward and essential as a rebuttal to the move towards a seemingly largely intolerant fragmentation, walls and flag waving national populism where nation seems a very dangerous word. Your pod does this by disseminating better probabilities than those peddled the above. Have you ever listened to Byzantine and Friends, another pod that got the, my old grey cells a buzzing, thanks. Stephen, I, I, well, I must admit, when I first read that message, I didn't understand a word of it. Not a single word. Um, but I think I think, as any, I think, what you're gearing yourself towards there is really the, the, the definition of a nation and what it actually means to be a nation and, and the people's ethnicity, what it means to be ethnically uh, something or another. And yes, it is a very uh, grey area and, and there's, no, there's no definitive answers to sometimes who we are and who we're not. Um, it really is just the, the human desire to label and uh, name everything in order to make it more comprehensible in our own minds. So interesting subject for discussion. And uh, I'm sorry, I had to read it about five times before I understood it. But that, that says more about my intellect than it does about your email, I think. Okay, moving forward, um, I've got a, a a message here from Matt from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm not going to read out the first bit because you get stuck into people from Kansas and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to entertain all that kind of thing. I like, I like to be nice to everybody. Uh, but you put, hi Chris, one question I had for you was uh, how sure you are that Homo sapiens are really the most intelligent Homo species. Uh, putting aside that there may well be undiscovered members of the genus, I, dis I suggest that not only do we know very little about Neanderthal intelligence, um, or, but that we're probably not in a position to uh, assess cognitive abilities by looking for fossilised skulls, or lo looking at fossilised skulls, I should say. If you mean Homo sapiens had superior tool-making ability or linguistic ability, we might agree more. But before we rate intellect, let's see you try to interpret the intricate colour displays of a cuttlefish or navigate space like a bird, you flatlander. Uh, love the podcast and really appreciate your presentation. Oh, no, I don't even know what you're saying to me there. What are you talking about? Um, anyway, um, the uh, yeah, so I, I think you raise a very a valid point there, Matt, um, in terms of the um, the the speculation about uh, Homo sapien intelligence comparatively. Um, yes, of course, we don't know anything. We don't know anything at all. There's nothing written. There's no artifacts that tell us anything about the the cognitive abilities of, of our ancestors other than uh, the tools that they created and maybe the, what we may interpret as, as later artwork, perhaps. Um, but, I mean, in my mind, um, and, and of course I cannot be an authority about it and I don't necessarily see how anyone can be a definitive authority on this subject, um, but personally the fact that we're here and the, and the other species aren't um, sort of, 
says to me really that we probably are the most intelligent homo species and and certainly the world that we live in and the world that we have created for ourselves um demonstrates that too so um you know but listen everyone's entitled to their own opinion that's the beauty of that question i think um and then finally we've got an email from spencer crandall who's put absolutely love your podcast, not only because of the great information, but how you've presented it. Your passion for it is clear and helpful. I think after all these episodes, I think I must enjoy what I'm doing, Spencer, in order to still be here doing it, I think so. Uh, But, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you so much for the kind message and thank you to all of you who've sent uh, messages in. Let's uh, move over to reviews now. Let's see if I can... um, uh, gets all, someone's actually written, uh, Tony Babb has written on, on WordPress, I love your History of the World podcast. You've obviously done extensive and meticulous research. Your way of simplifying it without uh, overdoing it is just perfect for me. I'm still in the first part of your prehistory episodes and find them very clear and logical as well as reasoned. In short, thanks for clearing up many things for me. Sincerely, Tony Babb, Hartford County, North Carolina. Thank you so much for that message, Tony. I often miss those messages that are um, that are put on other forums, so I, I sincerely apologise for that. Uh, let me see if I've got any uh, reviews. Uh, I've got um, UNOITSLP from Apple Podcasts, United States of America, but a good place to wrestle. I started back in March and just caught up. I've been impressed with the amount of information covered in uh, such a short time. You present the facts in a coherent way, but leave room for people to make their own conclusions. I myself have a Christian worldview, but I'm also an amateur historian and love to wrestle with what I follow spiritually, but see physically. I love how you unapologetically present the religious view unbiased when they do line up with history and seems likely, and when they don't. And that doesn't even scratch my fascination with the Stone Age and classical worlds. A-plus podcasts will continue listening. My only thing I don't like is the reading of the messages and questions at the end. This is what I'm doing for you. Uh, because it doesn't hold my attention like the episodes. But I respect you. Uh, respect that you do it. It's, it's, it'd be ironic if you read mine and I didn't even hear it. You definitely deserve my review, though. Landon from Tennessee. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't have to listen to the end bits, you know. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Some people have written in before. In fact, some some of our greatest benefactors uh, say it drives them mad when I read out all the messages. But, um, you know, this is something that I really got from Rex Factor. Rex Factor do it, and I, and I quite like it. And I think it, it does show a bit of respect for the people that have make, made the effort to write in, so... Um, but obviously, if you're listening to the podcast all in a row, you can just skip this bit. Uh, Fernando Silva C from Chile has put pure podcast excellence, incredibly educational and entertaining. The last episode of this series should be about this very podcast since tackling this behemoth task deserves to have its own place in history. Keep up keep up the great work. That's a great review, Fernando. Thank you. And I'm really thrilled. I, I can't recall um having a review from chile um so i'm so pleased that you've done that i'll forgive me if if we have but i just don't recall it um and um that's uh that's it that's it we've we've done them all so thank you so much for everybody who's written in and um 
you know i don't apologize for for reading them out you were kind enough to take the time and make the effort to write them and 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 so the least i can do is read them out um anyway uh, let's move on now plenty of chit chat and uh now we need to focus on next week we we sort of reach the end of our uh, classical world uh, view of china uh, but there is one very, very, very important aspect of this period of history that we would be uh, we would be wrong not to discuss in further detail, and that is the Silk Road trade route. So next week we're going to be looking more closely at the emergence of this uh, Silk Road trade route and and on its on a larger scale. But obviously there's so much that goes into it, so it deserves its own episode. So um, I'm really looking forward to that one. Anyway, um, thank you so much for taking part in this week's episode and uh, and giving us your ears for another 45 minutes. Um, and we'll look forward to doing it all over again next week. Um, but until next week, please, please, please be good. Come to the History of the World podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati? Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.